the line that OCD and anxiety disorders sell us is like a really convenient one. It's like, okay, if you could just control this one aspect of your life, everything would be okay, right? So if you could just make sure that you're not going to have a panic attack when you go outside, you'd be good, right? And the, the reality is that, no, there would still be a lot of uncertainty and a lot of unknown, and that's okay. Welcome to a Healthy Push podcast. I'm Shannon Jackson, former anxiety sufferer turned adventure mom and anxiety recovery coach. I struggled with anxiety, panic disorder, and agoraphobia for 15 years. And now I help people to push past the stuff that I used to struggle with. Each week, I'll be sharing real and honest conversations along with actionable and practical steps that you can take to help you push past your anxious thoughts, the symptoms, panic, and fears. Welcome. You're right where you're meant to be. Hi, Lauren. Welcome to a Healthy Push podcast. Thank you I am so much so for excited having me. To sit down. Yeah, I am so excited to sit down and chat with you today. Before we dive into our topic, I mm-hmm. just want you to start by giving us an introduction to who you are and what you do. All right. Uh, so I am Lauren Rosen. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, so a psychotherapist in, in California. And I also work with people in Utah, Florida, Arizona, internationally. And I'm actually working on getting my license in Nevada right now. So that's that's fun. Um, <laughs> and I'm also, yeah, <laughs> it's funny with all of the like the interstate and international stuff, um, just, you know, obviously trying to navigate it all. But uh, yeah. especially with so much online therapy happening these days, but I'm also the director of the Center for the Obsessive Mind. We're an outpatient center in in Orange County, California. We're exclusively online for the time being, just given the COVID of it all. And our our focus and my focus has been on treating OCD, anxiety disorders, and eating disorders. I also work with people with co-occurring substance use disorders. So that's that's kind of me in a in a nutshell. And I have a podcast, if anyone's interested in listening, Purely OCD with Kelly Branke. We're both clinicians who live with OCD. So it's it's sort of trying to uh, discuss OCD both from the lived experience vantage point and also from the clinical vantage point, trying to marry, marry the two. Um, so yeah, I think oh. I think that that's it, kind of, anyway. Amazing. So this is always whenever I start these discussions, it's so funny to me how many people share right off the bat, I struggle or have struggled with whatever our topic is. And I'm always blown away because sometimes people don't share it on social or maybe they do. And I just, of course, haven't seen it. But I did not know this about you. So you didn't No. Yeah. yeah. So this well, is- <laughs> it's it exciting. <laughs> it's true though. A lot of uh, I think a lot of people come by this work sort of honestly because of their own experience. Yeah. And I I am pretty open about my lived experience. I'm not super open just because obviously, I, you know, I it's not about me, but I think it just in terms of having some level of solidarity cuz you know, yeah. we're all in this together and it it's not an easy road. Um by any stretch. So, so yeah, so that's actually what got me into this line of work was my own. Well, I mean, that's a, a pretty limited 
it's part of the reason that I got into this work. I also have a, a bachelor's in psychology and have always been really interested in the field. So so cool. Well, maybe we'll get into a little bit of your personal experience yeah. um, in the conversation. So let's just start off. Today's topic is OCD. So let's just start by what is OCD? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think even breaking it down into like, what are obsessions and what are compulsions? And I know that you had, had wanted to, I think, talk about that too. Yeah. It, it helps to define what OCD is. So obsessions, when we, when we talk about obsessions, it, it, sort of in the vernacular, we think of, I'm obsessing about something, right? That it's this behavior. When we talk about it in a, in a clinical sense, we're not actually talking about an active ruminative process. That's a compulsion. And I think it's important to sort of acknowledge that up front because people think, oh, well, obsessions are something that are outside of of my control, Mm -hmm. which is true. But if you're thinking that a compulsion is actually an obsession, you might just be capitulating to um, some behavior that's actually really toxic to you. Gotcha. So obsessions are thoughts, images, urges. They are intrusive. They sort of come into the mind unbidden and unwanted. Mm -hmm. And they tend to cause doubt, anxiety, discomfort in the mind of of the person, uh, in the body and the person (laughs) that is is experiencing the the thoughts or images or urges. So it, we see this coming up in all sorts of variations. Of course, you've got um, obsessions related to contamination, which I think is probably the better known uh, version of OCD or uh, obsessions related to uh, something bad happening or magical thinking type mm-hmm. obsessions. If, oh, if I don't, if I step on that crack, right, then people are going to die, for example. So those are, those are obsessions and the, often there's a a what if component to them. So the compulsion is the thing that people do to try to get rid of the anxiety and the uncertainty and the doubt and the discomfort that came up in the first place, secondary to the thought. Mm -hmm. And so we break the compulsions down into four categories, behavioral, mental, uh, reassurance, seeking and avoidance. And again, we've got the better known compulsions like hand washing, door checking. Those are really in the behavioral category. Avoidance, I think, probably is something that that people can relate to. Like, I'm not going to touch things as well. But in terms of other obsessions and therefore, and uh, like related compulsions that, that maybe people don't hear as much about or aren't as widely talked about, they can include things like images, an image might pop into your mind of stabbing someone. And we, you know, that would be sort of an internal trigger. And then you might have a thought like, oh my gosh, what does it mean that I just had this, this image of, of hurting mm-hmm. that person? Does that mean I want to do that? Right? Mm-hmm. There's the obsession causes anxiety. And then, and as a compulsion, somebody might ask for reassurance about, well, is it normal to have thoughts about whether or not you want to kill someone, which asking that once super normal, 
but people with OCD tend to ask it repeatedly. Um, so that's another way that compulsions can sort of show up. Um, and then also mental behaviors, which again, like I think that they're the trickiest because, and everyone, everyone does mental behaviors, but nobody really talks about it in our culture. And I think that's a problem that transcends the, the realm of OCD, Mm -hmm. but rumination. So sort of churning or analyzing, reviewing past, uh, circumstances to try to get certainty about something, um, rehearsing into the future to try to make sure that everything's going to be okay. These are all behaviors and they're compulsive behaviors because they're done to try to get like a sense of solid ground and certainty and relief in the face of uncertainty and anxiety. Yeah. And yeah. So, I mean, those are the sort of major ways that we see these, uh, these behaviors come up. So back to your larger question of what is OCD, it's the presence of obsessions and or compulsions. And so compul- obsessions are right. Like these thoughts and, and experiences that, that pop in and the compulsions are either things that are done to try to prevent something bad from happening or according to rules that have to be followed really rigidly and okay. or I should say. And, uh, the last thing I'll say on, on what OCD is, because of course everyone's, I'm so OCD. And I think, <laughs> which cringe. obviously, yeah, super cringe, um, which, Hey, if you're out there and you've said it before, that's okay. Like I'm not casting aspersions, but I think there's a lot of ignorance about what OCD really is. And I think a large part of that is because we do use that term very casually to discuss a, a desire to be neat and tidy, uh, or, you know, a, maybe a germophobia. And I think recognizing that it has to cause distress or impairment in your life in order to be diagnosed as a disorder, as like pretty much any disorder that mental illness that we would diagnose has to have that criteria. So if it's not causing you distress, is probably not OCD. And more than anything, I would encourage people to stop using the term OCD to uh, describe a, a love of cleanliness just because uh, it really prevents people from getting treatment because they don't know that, oh, this thought that I had about, you know, like I mentioned earlier, murdering, murdering someone is actually a reflection of OCD. Yeah. Thank you. I'm so glad that you talked about that because you're seeing more and more about that now on social media and not using it as an adjective and just mm-hmm. being aware, you know, and it, it definitely, like you said, it will prevent people from getting help because you, you know, people can just think like, I just like to be clean and I like things to be in order. And like, there's so much more to OCD than just that. Yeah. And I, myself, I didn't have the awareness that I do now. And thankfully, that's one of the great parts about social media is that you get more informed and more knowledge and it's really helpful. And so I'm really glad that you shared that piece of information. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I know we talked about this a little before we jumped on um, our discussion I think there can tend to be some overlap. I was just listening to you while you're explaining OCD and I'm thinking back to all the behaviors and 
the obsessions and the rituals, the things that I did to prevent the anxiety and the panic and all of it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, (laughs) between the conversation with Jenna and now the conversation with you, Lauren, I'm like, wow, I had to have been struggling with OCD and didn't even know it. Um, But it's just, I think it would be helpful if we could talk about that a little bit, because I Mm -hmm. think a big thing, you know, for me, my obsessions were, you know, a lot of thoughts, a lot of what if thinking, a lot of trying to, you know, have some bit of control and Mm -hmm. always have things be certain. And so I would do a lot of reassurance seeking. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm sure there's overlap, right? Can you talk about a little bit? Like, Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and, and just to clue, everyone uh, listening in, what what we were talking about before we started recording was uh, the fact that we're very keen to put things into buckets (laughs) Um, as as a society, I would say. Anyway, like I think that's how our brains work. And and just looking at how we, we look at things in an all or none way, right? We look at things as black and white, and this is a very efficient way of thinking. That doesn't mean it's accurate, but you know, you, you, when you don't have a lot of time to make a choice, like if there's something in front of you that's a threat to your safety, we want that kind of thinking to to be in play. Like I want to yeah. make the the snap decision and just go with it, right? Unfortunately, applied across a wide variety of things, it becomes a problem. And so we want to make we want things to be in these categories. We want we want to be like, well, that's that. Mm-hmm. But that's not how life is. That's not how human beings are. <laughs> We're not, you know, it's much more complex than that. And so I think looking at these categories that we've created in, in this book called the DSM that's written by people, right? Right. Uh, I think that there's a lot of overlap between the different disorders, especially the different anxiety disorders and OCD is no longer technically under the anxiety disorders heading in the DSM, which is probably very uninteresting to most people. (laughs) Um, But I I think that it generally is still very much an anxiety disorder. And in the DSM-4, the iteration before it, it was sort of classified under this larger category. Um, So Within the category of anxiety disorder still, we see panic disorder, agoraphobia, specific phobias, generalized anxiety, social anxiety disorder uh, in a different section, but certainly related illness anxiety disorder or hypochondriasis. So, and the, the through line between all of these disorders is this element of, uh, intolerance of uncertainty. Like, I don't, I want to know that that person likes me yeah, or that this, that person is not judging me, right? That's social anxiety. Or I want to know that I'm not going to have a panic attack when I go outside. Right. That's right. Or that I'm not going to lose my mind or go crazy. There, there's agoraphobia, right? Um, or I want to know that when I, um, well, I mean, and it's sort of panic disorder too, uh, or that, I want to know that I'm not going to run into a dog when I go outside, right? Yeah. I, uh, because, and that's like more specific phobia or um, I want to, I want to know that I'm not going to feel discomfort too. Right. right. Uh, 
is this desire to manage and control every aspect of life because of this fear that I'm not going to be okay if I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I always say too, that I think that the line that OCD and anxiety disorders sell us is like a really convenient one. It's like, okay, if you could just control this one aspect of your life, everything would be okay. Right. Right. So if you could just make sure that you're not going to have a panic attack when you go outside, you'd be good. Right. And the, the reality is that, no, there would still be a lot of uncertainty and a lot of unknown and that's okay. Yeah. But there's no, there's no end point. There's no point at which, oh, we've now resolved everything. And uh, one of my favorite authors, Pema Chodron, talks about it as we never achieve the dream of constant okayness. Mm, so true. <laughs> but that's what we're looking for. That's, right. uh, ah, how do I, how do yeah. I make sure that I just get ground under my feet and everything's fine and I know that everything's going to be good. That's, that's what underlines, all, underlies all of this. Yeah. It's so funny because I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about, I know, a lot, of course, a lot of my community is struggling with panic disorder and agoraphobia, but you know, a lot of with OCD, like before I started educating myself and learning more about OCD, of course, contamination OD, like you, OCD, like you said, when we started off is like the thing I think most people think of. Mm-hmm. Um, growing up, it was so interesting because I learned that my grandfather struggled with OCD mm-hmm. all throughout his life. And it was just so interesting to hear these different stories. And like one story in particular, I will never forget. And it will always stick with me is he would on his walk homes every night, he would touch the same like track in the railroad. Mm-hmm. And if he didn't touch it, he went home and and forgot to touch it. He would literally have to go back out. And it didn't matter if it was, you know, nine o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night. And I don't know because I, I didn't know enough then and I wasn't curious enough to ask. But I, of course, am now thinking he was, he had to have been thinking something bad would happen if he didn't do that. There or that have... he would feel off forever, yeah. right? Like that's the sort of just right is like, if I don't do this, then I'm going to feel off and I can't have that. So I got to so go true. back. So yeah. I, yeah, I mean, who knows what your grandfather was was thinking, yeah. but wow. Yeah. There's so much struggle going on that we, that we don't see and that we don't know about. And it's in many ways like living in a prison of your own making. Right. That's Only, all I could think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think that part of what therapy is or what recovery is about is saying, well, wait a second. It is of my making, right? Like I get to change yeah. this. I get to change my relationship to this. Um, because so often we're sort of a victim to the the compulsions, but the reality is they're behaviors that we're choosing. Now, it's not to say that it's an easy choice to make and it's a very uncomfortable choice to make to do something different but we do have the power, right? Like we do have the, the ability to get out of that, that prison. Um, I think one thing I want to touch on too, not to go too far back, but to this discussion of what, what unifies all of these different disorders, uh, is that we, you know, I talked a lot about compulsions. We have a word for compulsions and these other disorders, they're called safety behaviors, they're the same thing, you know, and I, that's again, I think really important because, and especially because people who have multiple diagnosis, which is d- diagnoses across these, you know, different anxiety disorders 
not uncommon, start to believe, oh my gosh, there's so much that I have to get through. How am I ever going to navigate all of this? Well, if we pare it all down, it, it's not actually so much. It's one thing. It's this uncertain, this uncertainty and anxiety. And uh, so I, I think that that can be helpful in terms of recognizing that you, that, and I think it happens with OCD too, in the different subtypes. It's a, it's, it's good because I think it helps people to feel seen in their experience and understood. And at the same token, if we get too caught up in it, it's, it, we miss the point, which is that we want sort of trying to loop it back into what we're just talking about with the prison, that it's like, we're just, it's, we build this scaffolding to try and get certainty, but that's, that's the, it, so whether the rule is like, I have to figure out how I'm not going to panic in public, or I have to make sure that this bad thing doesn't happen by um, doing this thing, it's the, the rules are set out so that you can follow them, which they're containing. But then, of course, the problem is that you're contained by them in ways that you don't want to be. Yeah, I'm so glad that you said it. it's a behavior and it's a choice. You have a choice in it mm-hmm. because I think oftentimes, and of course for myself, it felt like the hardest choice to make. It didn't feel like a choice at the mm-hmm. time. And it felt like, you know, you're, I don't know, maybe a little bit, you could share your personal experience. I'd love to, to yeah. hear that a little bit, but you do feel like a prisoner and like this stuff is happening and you can't do anything to change it. And you right. really feel this strong sense of it's bad enough that I have all these obsessions, but the harder part for me was not doing the compulsions and feeling like that wasn't a choice. Like, because right. if I didn't do that, then everything went out the window and I had absolutely no control. And I was just like giving into it. I didn't know at the time, obviously, that was exactly yeah. what it was doing was like just perpetuating it and making it worse. Um, so yeah. maybe can you share, like, did did you have a similar experience? Yeah. Um, I'd be happy to share about my, my experience. I, yeah, I think especially my compulsions were largely mental. And I did so, and I think that that's back to what I was saying earlier, the idea that we don't know about mental behaviors or talk about them much as a society or differentiate between the thoughts that pop in versus the thinking that we do. Um, it, it does give us a sense of powerlessness related to what's going on in our brains. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's the element of any behavior can, the experience is, oh, that's out of my control because the feeling is so big, uh, which but in addition to that, some of the behaviors, we don't even know that they're behaviors or that there's something that we can do to intervene on our own behalf. Mm-hmm. And so for me, and I've had so many iterations uh, and a lot of it was in, in retrospect, like, oh, of course that was, that's what, this was the same thing when I was seven as it was when I, you know, entered treatment. Like I, I started all the, the sort of uh, events fell into place when I had the understanding of OCD and the, the diagnosis. Um, but one of, one of the things that I talk about was what took me to treatment, which is I had an obsession about, okay, backstory. I got sober when I was 19 
and uh, you know, I had I had an issue with substances, and uh, so when I was I don't know maybe a year and change sober, I had eaten a piece of tiramisu at a bridal shower, and I I was pretty sure that the alcohol didn't cook out of it, but I was like, oh. screw it. I'm going to just, I'm going to eat it and who cares, right? Like I'm, I'm 19 and I'm sober. <laughs> I'm just like apparently trying to rebel, I guess. Right. I, at this point, maybe I'm, I'm 20. I don't even know. But, uh, and afterwards I, I, I called my sponsor. I was in 12 step at the time. And I was like, did I relapse? And her response was, no, don't be ridiculous. You didn't relapse, which held me for several years. And I was like, oh, okay. And I dismissed it and went on with my life. But I uh, probably a couple of years later had the thought again. And I, I was worried that my sobriety, like I wasn't actually sober, that I was lying. Yeah. And that's the other thing is that anxiety, OCD, it tends to latch on to what matters most. And my, my sobriety was something that I really was, it was one of the most important things in my life. I, I, because my life had really turned in a really unfortunate direction when I was, when I was still drinking. So I started to really worry that I wasn't being honest which is such a huge part of recovery, especially in a 12-step model. And then I started to compulse and I would churn over and over again in my mind, trying to figure out what was my intention? Well, if my intention was this, what does that mean about me? Does that mean I'm not really sober? Does that mean I need to read or change my sobriety date? And this went on, oh, well, and that and reassurance seeking, I mean, my mother and I still laugh because she's like, no, no one in my family can see like tiramisu on a menu without <laughs> having sort of like a, a really intense reaction to it. And I can laugh now, but in the moment it yeah. was excruciating and it was all consuming. And I was sure that I had to figure that out. I had to figure it out or I could never, I couldn't live my life. So yeah, so two years of this, of the, the constant phone calls to, I honestly, anyone in the 12 step rooms of the greater Los Angeles area has probably (laughs) been asked at some point as to whether or not I relapsed on this piece of tiramisu. And I, it, it, I finally had somebody say, you know, have you considered that you might have OCD? And I was like, well, this isn't OCD. This is like, I'm not washing anything, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is why I'm passionate about, about spreading awareness. And all of that to say, like, I, I sort of lay that out because I think in that so much of my compulsions, not only, uh, did I not believe that I had an option in terms of performing them? And that includes the reassurance seeking, but I also didn't know that they were like, I didn't know they were behaviors. I didn't Mm -hmm. know that I had a choice about whether or not I was going to continue to analyze my, you know, whether or not I had relapsed on this thing. I thought that that, like, that just was what was happening and I was along for the ride. And so, um, yeah, I think it, it, the experience of it is very powerless yeah. And, and at the same token, 
and that's that, that's where recovery is so amazing is that you're you're given this agency you're you're made aware of the fact that like oh this is a choice and not that that gives me free uh reign to beat the heck out of myself if i if i find myself uh having done a compulsion it just means oh i i get to sort of i get to live the life that i want to live regardless of my thoughts and feelings yeah so big yeah yeah. So I know, like, I'm so glad that you shared that and thank you for yeah. being vulnerable. So yeah. I know how hard it can be to stop compulsions altogether, right? And when people mm. talk about treatment and you're like, okay, you just want me to stop doing this thing that I've literally been doing every day, maybe 10, 20, 100 times a day. Right. I can't even imagine. So can you talk about the idea of delaying or the how you delay a compulsion and how that can be really helpful. Yeah. And I want to add in, if I may, like sort of dog ear, the idea of practice. Yeah. Because I, I think people, again, view it as very all or none. Mm-hmm. And that's not the reality. That's not, especially when you're, sometimes you start doing a compulsion without even being aware that you are. So I'm going to dog ear that and we can come back to that. (laughs) Um, But I think delaying can be a really helpful tool or limiting. That both of those are are ways that instead of saying, okay, we're just going to stop doing this, which may, may just may not be something the person is willing to do to start. They're like, okay, well, are you willing to limit your hand washing to one minute instead of 10 minutes? Um, are you are you willing to limit checking the door to three times instead of 10 times? And, you know, any iteration in between. Are you willing to limit the amount of times that you're asking whether or not somebody's upset with you? <laughs> like, yeah. or whether or not you've hurt somebody's feelings? Um So that's, I think, either making it incremental or saying like, okay, I'm going to tolerate this uncertainty for this period of time. Mm -hmm. And I I think oftentimes we'll do like shorter delaying at first. I also think saying, okay, 24 hours, I'm just putting that aside, which can be really difficult. But I'm I'm not touching that. I'm not answering that for 24 hours. What's really interesting is the more time and space that you get between that initial occurrence and making a decision about whether or not you're going to compulse, the more objectivity you tend to have around it. Yeah. It's so true. And, yeah. And there's actually there's there's um neurological sort of correlates to that. Uh, Jeffrey Schwartz did a lot of research uh, many years ago now uh, into the brains of people with OCD. And essentially, well, there are a lot of areas of the brain that are implicated in OCD and uh, many that I'm, I'm sure I'm going to bastardize because I, <laughs> I don't, um, I am not a neuroscientist yet, but um, <laughs> so the, there's the caudate nucleus and the prefrontal cortex or the orbitofrontal cortex, which is part of the prefrontal cortex that are implicated in OCD. And essentially what happens is that with people with OCD, this part of the brain, the caudate nucleus, 
which is supposed to act like a gear shift that smoothly transitions from one activity to the next, gets stuck. And when it gets stuck, it sends this message that something's off, something's wrong, something needs to be addressed to the orbitofrontal cortex. And, and so what Jeffrey Schwartz found in his research is that refocusing attention actually reset this mechanism in the brain. Mm-hmm. So that over, and a lot of people will um, have maybe a, a, an experience uh, uh, initially, even when they're just entering into this realm of recovery of like, I couldn't do the compulsion. And I, I got completely absorbed in something and three hours later, it didn't seem quite so important. So interesting. Yeah. So that, I think that's one of the benefits of delaying, but the other yeah. is just to recognize like we're building a muscle. We're, we're building a muscle of tolerating uncertainty and discomfort. And if that starts with, with delaying for three minutes, like I'm just not going to wash my hands for three minutes, or I'm just not going to ask for reassurance for five minutes Yeah, and sort of making space for that feeling. Uh, if that's, if that's what you're willing to do, then Absolutely. Let's start there, you know? Yeah. It totally it's you've got to do small steps because I mean, mm-hmm. I think more power to you. There are some people, of course, that can just like dive in and just do the thing. And that was not me. <laughs> so yeah. I always love the idea of starting small and like these small steps are what help you to reach your ultimate goals. And so I love I love this idea and I love how you talk about limiting because that you know, that's huge too. So I guess let's back up because we didn't really dive into it. Um, Before we talked about this piece is how do you actually acknowledge that you're participating in a compulsion? Like how do you even acknowledge that you're doing it? Because I know so many times I didn't even, didn't even know that I was doing it. Yeah. Well, and it's all, and that's, I think, down to what I was talking about with practice too, and what I wanted yeah. to return to. So maybe I can weave the two together, but I, first of all, you're not always going to recognize it's a compulsion until after the fact, but that's going to support you in better recognizing them moving forward. Oh, I was trying to get, I was just trying to get certainty there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's interesting information. And, oh, well, how do I, like, how did I feel in that moment? Well, I felt like this sort of pull in my chest and I, or my, like my throat was starting to tense, right? That's going to key you in so that the next time that that on edge feeling is there, you might take a step back and go, wait a second, like <laughs> this feels urgent and there's nothing objectively around me that suggests that this is urgent. Maybe I want to be suspicious. Maybe yeah. I don't want to take this at face value. So I, I think it's, but it's a practice and you get better at seeing it as you go. And as, as you are willing to be aware in a non-judgmental fashion, which is why it's so important not to berate yourself. If you notice that you've compulsed, that's yeah. a learning opportunity. That's oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I guess I did that. And that's, I think to a larger discussion too around, uh, the way that we view treatment and, and the goal, because a lot of people I think think, 
oh, I have to stop all compulsions. And that's the aim. And if I stop all compulsions, I'll stop having thoughts and I'll feel less anxious, <laughs> which is just not we're like, it's the, the paradigm shift that's required for recovery is the thoughts and feelings are not going away. Yeah. And how do I, like, how do I view every time they come up as a moment to be in, to practice having a better relationship with them? Yeah. The other thing in terms of this idea of practice is I think recognizing when you're in compulsive behaviors and, and just practicing making the choice to disengage. So especially with mental compulsions. Because they, so I meditate and I, I really am a big advocate for meditation because it really replicates what happens in daily life when you have anxiety, um, is that you, you kind of get pulled off into trains of thought and then you realize that you're, you're off on this train of thought and you have this opportunity to come back to the present. And that practice is integral to recovery. It's not about never doing a compulsion. It's about seeing when you are doing a compulsion and saying, oh, let's reorient toward accepting uncertainty and anxiety and discomfort. Um, So yeah, I think in addition to the, the limiting the number of compulsions and the delaying compulsions, there's also this component of recognizing that it's something that you do over and over and over again. And you're not doing it wrong if you have to keep practicing. <laughs> like that's, yeah. that's exactly how it's supposed to go. One thing I will say is with mental compulsions, I, I think limiting them or del- limiting them in particular can be really tricky. And if there's a content area that is really fraught for people that going into the, um, like any discussion around that or any analysis around that topic is probably best done supervised by somebody who understands OCD. So not somebody who's going to just reassure you within an inch of your life, but somebody who's going to go like, okay, wow, you're, you're really uncomfortable with this uncertainty. Where does it make sense to accept uncertainty here? Like, is there any problem solving to be done? Maybe. Like, let's talk about it. I, I think the mind can be sort of a dangerous neighborhood to go into alone sometimes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So I'm really curious. I saw you talk a little bit on your platform about mindfulness meditation. Mm-hmm. And I know you just said that you love meditation. So how can mindfulness meditation be a good tool for OCD? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in so many ways. First of all, that that element of awareness of, of what's going on. Oh, I'm having a thought. Oh, I'm having a feeling. Okay. Because, and, and I want, I have the urge to do this behavior. Slowing down and recognizing these component parts is essential to disrupting the process and saying, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to have this thought, I'm going to have this feeling, and I'm not going to do that behavior. So I think slowing down and, and practicing this non-judgmental noticing, that, mm-hmm. which is what mindfulness meditation really offers, 
is central to that. I think it's also one of the most effective tools for practicing disengaging from mental behaviors. Um, because yeah, like it's, it's literally basic, basically disengaging from thinking in a vacuum. So Mm -hmm. uh, when we're talking just for anyone who's listening, when we're talking about basic mindfulness, meditation, focused attention, meditation, you choose an object in the present moment that you can rest your attention on like the breath, like sounds, like physical sensations. And then you rest your attention on that until your mind wanders, which, you know, usually like a breath. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, and then when you realize that you've wandered, you gently note it like, oh, look, I caught myself. I'm thinking, look at that. Okay. I'm just going to bring my attention back to whatever the anchor is, the breath, the sounds. Um, and what that does, it's a, it's a direct, like I said, uh, like a direct, what's the word that I'm looking for? Um, the, the, it has a direct connection to what you're doing in everyday life. When you have uh, an anxiety disorder, you have OCD, uh, just noticing oh, I've now gotten lost in trying to figure out whether or not I secretly want to murder people. Okay. I'm not doing that right now. I'm, I yeah. already committed. I'm, I'm making the choice to come back to the present, which the cool thing is in everyday life, there's a lot more to rest your attention on because there's a lot more going on. Yeah. So, you know, oh, I can, I'm listening to the words that are coming out of my friend's mouth as she's explaining the story. And I mean, I'm describing the sort of resting and awareness. It's less cognitive than that, but it really helps to support people in making different mental choices. Mm -hmm. It's so good because I, when I first learned of this, I didn't, I think somebody probably called it mindfulness and I was like, yep, I'm going to roll my eyes at this because how the heck is that going <laughs> to, how's that going to get rid of all these problems that I'm having? Yeah. Um, but it was so funny because I started to sit there and during conversations, like you said, or in rooms, of course, the sensations, the thoughts, the symptoms felt like they were the only things present. It felt like they were the only things that were going on, but there was so much more going on. There were so many other things that were going on. And I never focused on that other stuff. Of course, I was just like, okay, the the symptoms there, like, this is what I need to put my focus on until it goes away and I need to make it go away. And oh my gosh, of course, (laughs) looking back, like huge eye roll to myself of why the heck did you do that? But it's just, it's, you, you've got to, it's slow. You've got to practice and you got to practice recognizing that there are, are other things that you can put your focus to. And that is definitely going to help. And for me, it was a huge part of starting to acknowledge, like you said, the first part is just, okay, I'm acknowledging that I am, I'm feeling this symptom is really bothersome. I'm feeling a little bit anxious. What else can I put my focus on right now? Right. And that was huge. Like, it is it sounds, huge. It sounds so silly because I think probably every therapist out there tells people this. And for years, I was probably like, "Screw that! That is not going to help me." Yeah. Like, do you have you but ever this had this thing? Is still going to be here? <laughs> like, right. 
I, what am I going to do with that? <laughs> right. No, it's so true. It's so yeah. true. And it is. It's so, so you're, you're always focused on that. Like that is the thing that is most loud, most present. I need to make that go away. But it's so funny when you start to turn your focus on other things, all the other things that are going on around you, and then it starts to get rid of that thing. <laughs> well, that's the interesting thing is that it then naturally like will come and go. Your awareness of yeah. it will be there sometimes and not. Um, I, I, I'm trying to think of I have an analogy that I want to share with you uh, that I think is pertinent to what we're talking about. Um, but I think one, one thing that I wanted to note is that the, the trouble is people with anxiety disorders, people with OCD tend to be really like good problem solvers. And so uh, very often, very type A, very, uh, sort of successful in, in the outward, uh, manifestation of that. And, the problem is that they're applying problem solving to something that's not a problem and something that can't be solved. Yeah. And that's sort of what you're talking about is like, I can't, I can't move on until I've addressed the thing. Right. Yeah. And so the practice is really in getting out of problem solving mode and, and recognize, Oh, like this, this can't be solved. My thoughts yeah. and feelings are not things that I can get rid of or that I need to get rid of. Yeah. Um, but I think the the analogy that I wanted to use based on what you're talking about that I use with meditation and also just with the way that we deal with, with thoughts and feelings that we don't want, it's sort of as though your attention is a spotlight on a stage. And the thing is that your spotlight is broken. It's not broken because every spotlight in every human mind is like this, but it, it's, it doesn't stay put like you might expect a spotlight, quote unquote, should. Yeah. And so here's this wandering spotlight and every once in a while it lands on this random box uh, that's like downstage left that you don't really want people to be focused on because that's not the main action of whatever play you're watching, right? So all of a sudden you're landed on this box. Now, people with OCD and anxiety then think, okay, I've got to detonate this box, right? <laughs> like I've got to try and the, the box is nailed to the the floor. It's not, it's not moving, right? So you, you know, like, how do I move it? How do I get rid of it? Gosh, it's ruining the whole play. And then, you know, like I said, it ends with some sort of a dynamite situation, um, which is really the, the funny thing is, of course, that this is really distracting from the play. Now we're like the whole play is no longer <laughs> happening and we're just focused on this random box. And so the work within OCD and anxiety recovery is to let the box be there and just bring your attention back to the central action of your life. Uh, the thing that you want the, the audience to be attending to. That's such a good analogy. Like <laughs> such a good, such a good one. Cause I can just picture myself like bringing out cases and cases of dynamite. I <laughs> mean like, this is the way. <laughs> All of a sudden you're like blowing up your audience, you know, it's right. going to, it's going to get a lot messier right. than just like letting the box be there. Right. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. (laughs) I think that's such such a good one to end on. So thank you so much, Lauren. If people want to find and connect with you, where can they find you? So a couple places. I am, as you mentioned on Instagram, I have uh, an account at The Obsessive Mind, and I try to provide pretty regular thoughts and, and ideas related to OCD, anxiety, eating disorder recovery on there. Uh, I also have a website. They can find me at theobsessivemind.com. That's the the website for the Center for the Obsessive Mind, which is, again, the center that I'm the director of. They can also find me on Purely OCD if they're interested in, in hearing me talk more about, about OCD, uh, which we actually, in addition to being a podcast, we record on Instagram Live so that there's interaction. And so... If you're interested in coming by, we record 12.30 p.m. Pacific time on Mondays. So so cool. Yeah. All these things yeah. that I didn't know. I'm so excited to dive into them. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> That's so lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for having me on. Yes. Thank you, Lauren. I hope you enjoyed this episode of A Healthy Push. If you want more, head on over to ahealthypush.com for the show notes and lots more tips, tools, and inspiration that will support your recovery. And if you're hoping for me to cover a certain topic, be sure to join my Instagram community at a healthy push and let me know in the comments what you want to hear next.